So we've been working through uh, this letter of Peter, and um, we're coming to the last few verses. It's like most letters, it's got a sort of a close, verse 12 to 14, it's just a few verses that close it, and um, we're, we're hearing, if you like, the end of the letter, and maybe just for a moment, we've thought about the context, we've thought about the, the audience, Let's just think about the man for a minute who's written the letter. Uh, we see that for a start he writes, he says in verse 12, with the help of Silas. Um, in a sense, we're, that, we're not really clear on that. We're going to speak a, a, a few minutes uh, about what that means. But it might have meant that Silas might have been a scribe uh, for Peter as he wrote it, so that there was perhaps moments where Peter might have been uh, if you like, dictating, and Silas might have been writing. It might just mean, that, and we'll cover it in a minute. We'll cover it in a minute. The, the point is this. Here's a man who is now in Rome, who's probably, probably in his mid-60s, coming towards the end of his life, and he's got a heart for this group of churches that are beginning their journey of faith in Jesus. So much so that he wants to, at this stage in his life, what's first and foremost in his mind is he wants to get this message to them. I, I think for us, no matter what stage we are at life, in our lives, I think it's important maybe for us just to pause and to think, what, what is a, a life well-lived? What, what's an indication of a life which has been a well-lived life? I think Peter is an example of this. At this stage in life, he's still concerned about the message of the gospel. He's still concerned about this young group of Christians. He's concerned that they develop. Uh, and in his situation at that time, he's got a heart for them. Now, he's not able to travel He's not able to do the things that he was once able to do, but his heart is still in the right place. Here's Peter, I think, who's a great example for a, for a life well-lived, a life which is a great example of a, an aspiration of, of how you would want to be, how I would want to be at the later stages of life. In other words, he's giving us a, a, an indication that a life well-lived is a life which is, uh, has it, at its heart a concern for the message of Jesus. That does not mean, that does not mean that every single one of us are going to be missionaries or are going to be uh, pastors or leaders or writers or anything like that. It means that we're still shaped in whatever context we are called to, that the message of Jesus is still driving us forward in some way. It might be very quietly. It might be that we've got an aspiration that I'm, I'm not a, an upfront person, but you know what? I am still going to pray. I'm going to be praying for the younger generation. I'm going to be praying for the kids who are in that group over there right now because that, those kids in that group over there right now will one day be in these seats uh, and one day will be the ones who, God willing, are, are praying for the next generation. What a great picture. Even just this little thought right at the end of the letter gives us the opportunity to ponder. 
what kind of life do we aspire to? And Peter is is exampling a life which is well lived, a life which has at its heart a concern for the message uh, of the Bible. He writes, uh, it's quite quite an amusing way in which he writes here, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, doesn't look amusing, does it? Um, I've written to you briefly. I'm just going to think about that. I'm going to, I've written to you briefly. He's, he's actually, it's a, almost an ironic comment that he's writing here. This is a letter that he's written, okay? It's a letter which has been sent. In all of the letters of antiquity that have been discovered, this is in the top 10% of the longest letters that have been discovered in antiquity. Not just letters from the Bible, but all of the wealth of letters that we have from antiquity. This is in the top 10% of, in, in length. This is a long letter by ancient standards. I don't know whether that's just like a typical uh, preacher's opportunity to say, you think I've been long, actually I've been really short. Or, or whether actually, I think it's something else. I think Peter has got a handle on this. I don't know where you are, I know where some of you are, but I don't know where all of you are in your journey in your Christian faith. You might be just beginning to think about things. You, you, might, you might be beginning to think actually and beginning to get it boxed off. That's a really uncomfortable place because what Peter is actually saying, I've wrote, written you this, actually this long letter in ancient terms, but in comparison to the depth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is tiny. This is just a little brief letter. Before we dig into what it's saying, I want to encourage you and remind you that we can never, never get to the bottom of the depth of the message of the Bible. We're never going to do it. I I find that exciting. I find it exciting that whenever we come to the Bible, there is a sense in which we can all understand the message of the Bible. There is a sense in which the Bible is astoundingly simple. It's quite simply a message of our need for a Savior and a God who is willing to come into this world and to live a life which becomes a sacrifice which pays the price for guilty sinners to come to that God once again and be saved. That's a simple message, isn't it? The whole of the Bible is describing that simple message, the good news of God in the world. But the great thing is that we can go down another layer, and we can go down another layer, and we can go down another layer. And it is not an academic exercise. It's an exercise which fills us with astoundment that God is deeper and deeper and deeper and we get further and further and we realize I'm just still just scratching the surface of what it is to know and to understand God. That's the God that the Bible is describing. In fact, the God that the Bible describes is a God who we will go to meet one day if we, if we are saved by Him, we will enjoy relationship for eternity with Him and He will satisfy us forever. 
just think about that for a minute. I guess pretty much all of us have got friends. Really close friends. Close friends for eternity? (laughs) Wow, that's a tough call, isn't it? But God is satisfying. There is always more. That's kind of what Peter is indicating here. This is brief. It's in the top 10% of letters written in antiquity. This is just a brief little excerpt of what he's closing with. So here we have this, in this verse, we've got three little things. The first thing is, I I think we've got a window, which we're going to look through. Second, we've got a message. And thirdly, we've got a response. So the first thing that we have in this little verse, verse 12 of the closing um, section of the letter, it says this. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. And that's a little window. We're going to cover it next week, but Peter is in Rome at the moment. He's, aim- he's coming towards the end of his life. What do we know about Silas? You might not know, perhaps the Bible is new to you, that Silas um, features again and again in the New Testament. He's one of the companions of Paul. So really, as we look at the the main drive of the message of the the Bible being spread through the, the ancient world, we see that Peter and Paul are the main drivers of the spread uh, of that message. Uh, and Peter uh, generally is considered the, the apostle to the Jews, and Peter, uh, Paul describes himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. They seem to have worked that out amongst themselves, and God has shaped them in that way to, to do that. But Silas, he has been a companion to Paul. That's interesting, isn't it? He's been a faithful companion, and he is now in Rome. People have speculated. There's some things that we do know. We know that Paul and Peter die or or are martyred pretty close to each other in time. It might be that Paul is already dead by the time this is written. And Silas, who was the companion to Paul, is now becoming the companion to Peter. I think that's interesting as a possibility because it shows and it indicates that as we've been journeying through this letter, what Peter has been saying again and again and again is, Uh, Be encouraged, be faithful, stand firm in persecution. It's what he's been encouraging them to to hold on to. Hold on to your faith in Jesus uh, while there is persecution beginning to emerge. This is not an empty idea for Peter, is it? He's right in the thick of it in Rome. He is being oppressed. In fact, when we look at the history uh, of the... um, of the uh, persecution of the Christian church in, in the Roman world, what we see actually is that it kind of spreads out from Rome. So Peter is not cheering from the sidelines, from the background, uh, it, kind of at the back while the battle's raging over there somewhere. He's saying, in a sense, stick firmly, keep going, because I know what it's like. 
I know what you're going through. I'm in the middle of it as well. Silas, this precious, uh, faithful brother, I am entrusting and I am sending this letter with him to you. That's another thing that we see. How, how important is the message of the Bible and the, how, how important is the message of the gospel in your life and in my life? Well, for Peter uh, and for the church in Rome, it seems as though they are willing to lose one of their faithful, courageous, and helpful servants so that he could take this message a huge distance to the churches in Asia Minor. We'll send Silas. He's important to us, but not so important that you don't get this message. What a picture. What, what a vision that we have there of Peter's concern that the message of the Bible actually does extend out, that the good news of Jesus gets secured in all of these places where it's been uh, first accepted and embraced. Imagine what it was like. These new churches, that the news comes through very slowly. There's a church over there in Asia Minor. In fact, there's a little cluster of them. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from Rome. But, but news comes through. And Peter hears this news. I'm going to write a letter to them. I'm going to send it to them. I want to encourage them. I want them to keep going. don't want them to lose that faith that has begun to, to build, be built up in. And therefore, as an apostle of Jesus, I want to write to them and I want to send that message so that they don't give up. I find that incredibly encouraging, don't you? That he was so concerned, I'm going to send Silas on this journey where he becomes the custodian of this letter which he personally carries to them. When you get home, have a look at the distance on a map between Rome and Turkey. Probably sailed around the, across the Mediterranean, but it was no simple trip. It was no easy trip, but he, he sent him with this message. It was important to him. I find that quite moving, really, because the life that was worth living, the life that this group of Christians in Asia Minor had been compelled by the message of the gospel to live, was so important that the church at Rome, who were equally compelled, sent uh, a precious servant with this letter. I wonder what it was like. It can be. It can feel. It must have felt pretty isolated. I would have thought in those churches at that time. And then all of a sudden, this letter turns up from Peter. And you turn up for one of you you meetings just like this. Maybe a, I don't know. Maybe a similar number of people. In a room, somebody stands up at the front. So we've had this letter from Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, who's in Rome, 
and he sent us this letter. I'm going to read it to you. And Silas, it's great to have Silas with us. He, He arrived last night, staying over. It's just brilliant to have Silas with us because he, he traveled around with Paul. Remember when he came here? And they start reading this letter, the message from Peter to this new church that is just beginning, that is secured in its faith by these words, the words of this letter. Exactly that same thing has happened for the past 2,000 years. This letter, these words, have been read out, have been thought about, have been discussed in churches for the past 2,000 years, and the same words are still encouraging Christians in all sorts of parts of the world. Why is that? Why is it that these words in this letter, just like the rest of this book, the Bible, why does it work like that? The Bible claims because these are not just simply the words of Peter. They are the living words of God. That that is a massive claim. In fact, it is so outrageous that it, we should be drummed out of the presence of God for claiming it if it is not true. But the apostles continually claimed that of what they were writing. They said, this is, this is the Word of God. This is the message of Jesus. Peter, I saw it. I saw it happen. So keep going, he says. And we're sending Silas to you. So firstly, we see a little window. Secondly, we see a message. He says, why is it worth living? Because I am encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. I'm encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Encouragement is a great thing, isn't it? And I, I, think, I think probably our culture um, sits at two ends of the, the spectrum. Either we're rubbish at con- uh, encouraging or we're kind of almost bizarrely exuberant when it comes to encouraging. We encourage all over the place. You know, the kind of... Uh, you can do anything. You can do anything, we tell, tell our, our little kids in school. And um, I'll be honest with you, if I was told that I could do anything and somebody said that I played basketball in school, which was quite interesting for a guy who was one of the shortest kids in the whole school. It was quite amusing. Uh, and if one of my teachers had said, uh, you can do anything, you can play basketball at an international level, that would just be bizarre. <laughs> Because I could not do it. There is a sense in which encouragement can be helpful and there's a sense in which encouragement can be devastating if it leads you into something which is not possible. But Peter is saying here, 
I am encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And I'm encouraging you because I was there. I'm testifying. He's saying, you can believe this because I was there with Jesus. I saw these things happen that I've shared with you. Not that he's talked in a sense about the events of Jesus' life. He's talked about Jesus, hasn't he? Right the way through. He's saying, this is about Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God come into the world. You can believe it. Because I was there. That is one of the, the foundational ideas of the message of the Bible. We believe it on the basis of the witnesses that saw it. Here's a man, Peter, who obviously at this point isn't dead, but within a matter of months or a year or so is dead. He is dead, killed under the Nero persecution. The legend, the tradition has it, that Peter, who was also crucified because he wasn't a Roman, the tradition says that Paul, as a Roman citizen, was beheaded and Peter was crucified because he wasn't a Roman uh, and therefore he was, um, he was given the death of, uh, without the privilege of the Roman state and, and the worst of deaths. Tradition has it that Peter, when he was crucified, didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. And so he insisted that he was crucified upside down. I don't know whether that is true. All of the history indicates that it probably was. That he was but, but what we do know is that he died because of what he believed. Here's an old man who is utterly convinced that what he saw of this Jesus, what he saw of this life in Jesus, what he shared over this, these years in Jesus was exactly the same person that he then ate fish with on the bank of the, uh, the Galilee after rising from the dead. He's convinced that the claims of Jesus are precisely those very claims which says it is, it is absolutely worth believing that Jesus is the Christ, the one promised by God. He's saying, I want to encourage you and believe that this is the true grace of God. What's this? What is the this? Everything that he's written. All this letter. So let's go back to chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying, I believe that. This is the true grace of God, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And he has given us a living hope through that resurrection and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying, look, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God come into the world, that when He died on a cross, He purchased an inheritance for you that is protected in heaven until He returns, and that it will be given to you. And I believe it because I saw the resurrected Jesus. 
And I also saw him leave this world and ascend into heaven. Not disappearing once again into the grave, but disappearing into heaven to return again. And therefore, this is the grace that I am encouraging you to believe wholeheartedly in. That's, that's the grace that he's saying believe in. He's saying this is a giving grace. What is grace? And grace is a great word, isn't it? It's a word, it's one of those words that is used so much in the, in the church. But what is grace? It's God's giving to us, isn't it? It's, what does God give to us? He gives to us an inheritance that we don't deserve. Something that we do not deserve. It is a gift. We are astoundingly bad at receiving gifts. It's, we are so bad at receiving gifts. Come round to our house for a meal. That's lovely, thank you very much. We must pay you back sometime. <laughs> we can't just say, thanks very much, that was great. We have an instant response which is, we need to give back. We need to pay back. We need to restore the favour that has been granted to you. Can, can you or I ever pay back the gift of eternal life. Never. It's a gift. It's grace. It's what we don't deserve. The picture that I found really helpful that I'm sure some of you will have heard, I'll use it very briefly again. Uh, Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. He's a, he's a convict who comes out of prison and he goes to a priest's house and in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he's concerned about his family uh, and he steals some of the silver from the priest and he disappears into the night. And he's, he's caught by the police. He's taken back to the priest's home uh, and kind of rough-necked at the door. Uh, and the door opens and there's the bag of silver. And the, is, uh, is this your silver? And the priest's look, priest looks at him. He says... Didn't you take the candlesticks? I gave you the candlesticks as well. And so the priest disappears and puts the candlesticks into the bag and gives it to Valjean. Uh, and the, the, the police are ju just furious. That's the kind of foundation for the rest of the story. What's justice in that situation? <laughs> What's justice? Justice is, yes, you've been found guilty. And, and what is just is that you will be punished for stealing the silver. What's mercy? Mercy is, you've been found guilty, but I've forgiven you. What's grace? I give you what you don't even deserve. It would be just for God to condemn us as rebels and sinners. It would be merciful for him to say, I forgive you, which is precisely what he does. But it is astounding grace for him to then say, and I will give you what you don't deserve. And Peter says, that is grace. That is amazing that he does that. And because he's done it, it's safe. We've looked at that previously. 
If anyone, uh, sorry, um, through him, through faith, you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last. What does that, what does that kind of comfort give us? Well, that kind of grace, it ensures hope, doesn't it? It ensures hope. <laughs> that sounds kind of contrary, doesn't it? it? It guarantees that hope. It says this will happen because God's power is involved. But it also strips us of our self-sufficiency. There's a sense in which that kind of grace is just so beyond anything that we could ever imagine that we can't even get close to it, that, that there is no way at all that we can be self-sufficient in our hope for the future. What does that do? It means that it silences our boasting. That's one of the things that both Peter and Paul and the rest of the New Testament major on. If this grace is so amazing, you can't boast about your future hope of salvation because it's given to you as a gift. You've done nothing to earn it. It's just given to you. So stop boasting about it. Stop claiming. What does it mean to boast about salvation? How does that work? It's easy to say, isn't it? But what does boasting about salvation look like? I think it looks like this. I'm a, Christ, I'm a believer in Jesus. And because I'm a believer in Jesus, I do this. I do this. I live like this. Look at how I live. Look how faithful I am. Look how unfaithful you are. That's what boasting looks like. It's what the Pharisees were continually being addressed by Jesus for. They didn't understand that hope was in God, not in what they did. So it strips, grace strips us of our boasting. But at the same time, on the one hand, if it, if it knocks some of us down from those kind of parapets that we want to build for ourselves, it also encourages the insecure, doesn't it? Doesn't grace encourage us when we're insecure? When we don't feel as if we're worthy of it? No, we're not. <laughs> but we don't need to be worthy of it. It's given to us as a, as a gift of grace. This great news, this message of Jesus so we see what life was like. We see a window. We see a message. But then finally, we see a response. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in what? Stand fast in that truth. And stand fast in that grace. Stand fast in that grace. I guess for many of us, the idea of having faith in Jesus and committing ourselves to Him might be a fearful thing because we don't know if we can keep going. What Peter is saying here is stand fast in grace. Stand fast in that the future is not secured in how well you stand. 
The future is secured in how faithful God is. That's absolutely essential that we understand that. Stand fast in something that is outside of me. Stand fast in our way of using it. It normally means be really strong yourself. Isn't it? Whether it's, a, whether it's a fight, whether it's some kind of sport, some kind of uh, physical activity, standing fast is all about me against whatever it is that's coming on to hit me. I, and I feel as if I, if I stand fast firm enough, whatever's coming along to hit me won't knock me over as long as I'm standing fast. And the reality is, if we understood the fearful power of that which opposes us, we would never, never stand in our own strength. And that's why Peter is saying, stand fast in the grace of God. Stand fast in Him. Your strength isn't in you, your strength is in Him. So how do we stand fast in faith? How do we stand fast in grace? I think to close, just this simple thought. If we fill our minds with thoughts about that, with good thoughts about God, with thankful thoughts about Jesus, with prayerful thoughts of our dependence on Him, without any sense of confidence in ourselves, we are expressing exactly the kind of faith that is standing fast in Him. John Piper puts it like this, and I wish I had the faith to do what he does every morning. He says that he gets up and he prays, God, keep hold of me today because I cannot keep hold of you. I think that's an amazing statement of faith, isn't it? To remind myself every single day that I am rooted not in my ability to stand, but in the faithfulness and grace of God to keep a hold of me. If I keep filling my mind with that, now I'm not, I'm, I'm strong in this, or I'm strong in that, or I'm strong in the other, but God keep hold of me. Why would he? I fill my mind with all of the promises that God has for me. I keep my mind filled with that. I, I view everything in the light of that because my commitment is this, that if grace is that kind of good news, He will. He will keep hold of me. He will not let me go. And that means that there's times that I've got to strip myself of selfish desires because there's lots of other things that I might prefer to do than to trust in Him. But trust in Him I must if I am to stand fast in grace.